Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Yeah, so my name's Jamie Rance. I'm a registered nurse and emergency nurse. I've been nursing for about 18 years or so, and most of that time has been in emergency departments, um, either in a clinical, research, leadership or education type role. In the last 10 years or so, I've been also working in an academic context at the University of Canberra, and in the last two and a half, three years, been up here at uh, Griffith University on the Gold Coast. My research focuses predominantly on disasters and mass gatherings and their impact on our health services, and in particular, our emergency healthcare services such as ambulance and emergency departments. My background with nursing has kind of always been parallel to some volunteering that I've done with St. John Ambulance and joined St. John Ambulance at the age of 13. And by the age of 14, was engaged in uh, first aid activities at various events, such as football, matches, parades and concerts. I uh, was was fabulous to get out and see different parts of the world from a healthcare perspective. And that's what really sparked my interest in, in healthcare. Whilst at those events, um, I remember providing health services to, to patrons and attendees of events um, from things such as a 14-year-old being involved in cardiac arrests at football stadiums or at Anzac Day marches uh, through to putting ice and band-aids on kids on the sides of football fields. And as I kind of started to go through my nursing career, started to ask more questions about why do we provide health services at particular events and why do we do them in this particular way? How do we determine whether having a doctor, nurse or paramedic at this event is required or not? And what's the broader impact on our health systems from those particular events? So that took me down the path of doing research around mass gatherings. At the same time, I was involved in some disasters within Australian context, such as the Canberra bushfires. I uh, came down and assisted with the Victorian bushfires from a bit more of a national coordination role within St. John Ambulance. At the time, I was the chief nursing officer, so responsible for the clinical practice and scope of practice for nurses in St. John Ambulance. Um, and at that time, we didn't have national registration, so it required nurses to cross borders and get registration within the various states and territories. So my role was around some of the coordination of that and liaison with various nursing boards to have our nurses volunteer in the out-of-hospital context within disasters. So my interest then stems around what's the nexus between the out-of-hospital space and the emergency department or hospital space, particularly for nurses and emergency care more generally, and how does that marry up and influence one another? Uh, led a bit to some further research. Um, in my PhD, looked at the experience of nurses who had assisted in disasters in the out-of-hospital context, um, particularly those nurses who normally work in the in-hospital environment and have the resources and support available to them, and what it was like for them in the out-of-hospital context. Not too long ago, I think it was either last year or the year before, I think it was last year actually, I was listening to uh, Margaret Murphy from Westmead Hospital tell us about, um, at a conference, tell us about her department's health response team that were deployed back in 2018 uh, to New Th South Wales music festivals because in the four months before, 
before that they'd had five deaths from uh, MDMA and they thought, well, let's do something about this. Um, so the teams delivered pretty high-level care, like aggressive cooling and rapid sequence intubation um, on, on at the scene. Uh, and I was taken aback by, and as it is quite often with these things, by the simplicity of the idea. But also I could see just how complex in implementation it would be. Um, the focus of your work in this area um, uh, might be familiar to the ED community, but n- not totally understood. Um, perhaps you could give us a little peek into the science around pre or out of hospital um, uh, world of mass gatherings and the interplay between mass gatherings and the emergency department. For sure. Have, have you ever been to an event like a concert, parade, festival, and ever wondered what's going to happen if I get sick or injured in amongst this crowd? How, how does anybody get to me? Because it's not like a, you're out on the side of a road where an ambulance can just pull up. You're in amongst a crowd, which just by that nature creates a different dynamic to the ability to access somebody to provide health services. So in events, what we then do, particularly some events which we might term as high or or moderate risk in terms of impacts on health, we would want to put in some kind of health team, whether that be simply first aiders um, with an organization that provides first aid services or first responder services, or it may be, again, teams of doctors, nurses, paramedics, on-site ambulances, field tents like you would see in disasters and so forth. And to come up with some ideas about that, the science is based on what do we know about patients presenting at those particular events to determine what kind of resources we need. And really broadly, there's three things which will influence your patient presentations to these particular events. They are biomedical aspects, such as the individual's age, comorbidities and so forth environmental aspects such as the weather if it's too hot or too cold it's going to influence our patient presentations environmental aspects such as are they seated or walking around is it fenced or unfenced ticketed or non-ticketed influence the number of patients that we might see environmental aspects such as service of food alcohol use of illicit drugs and so forth as well and then there's some psychosocial aspects and the psychosocial aspects include uh, the mood, and motivation of the crowd. So you could have two football teams playing at a particular venue, but depending on what two teams play, the mood and motivation of the crowds can be really different. So that happens not only at big stadiums and sporting types of events, but that happens at all levels of events from different music concerts that have different performers, um, different times of the day that they're performing, how much upbeat and high volume music is playing and so forth. So these three things, biomedical, psychosocial, environmental aspects, broadly influence patient presentations to major events. And then when we start to break that down further, we can look at some events which in the past we've probably considered high risk. And those ones that you've mentioned earlier on would be things such as outdoor music festivals. And they might be high risk in terms of health impacts because they include the use of illicit drugs 
alcohol, and people go to those types of events for lots of different reasons, but often it's about escapism for them. They want to experience something which is not like their normal every day. So at those types of events, we need to consider what health resources are available, how we implement them, and access and egress to patients within those events and so forth becomes complicated. Uh, You set it up as if it is disaster-like with health teams, with emergency operation centers, with health liaison, people talking to police and ambulance and event organizers and security and and cleaners because they're well connected with what's going on on the ground to help provide a health service. What case do you need in terms of drugs and equipment and what scope of skills do people have to be able to provide adequate health care? So one aspect is really How do we provide adequate emergency health care to people at events? But then I'm also conscious that if we are providing a health service to people at an event, are we adequately still providing health services to the local community where the event is being held? That is, if we have a music festival of 30,000 people on a nearby football field, and a number of ambulance resources get taken away from the community to go to that particular venue, and then those people end up being back in the emergency department and filling your resuscitation room. Well, what happens when I have my heart attack and call triple zero? Will there be an ambulance for me? Um, Will there be a spot in the emergency department for me? Or is it filled up with things which may have been preventable in some way or predetermined in terms of their impact on the health service. So I think those two key things are really important. How do we provide adequate health services that's tailored for an event population? And how do we provide and maintain the normal operational capacity of our health system in a city or town where an event is being held? of unsignaled questions here uh, um, because you've you've prompted me to think about this uh, a little more deeply how much um, uh, communication do you have with the local healthcare networks um, I don't know whether you get to the point of actually speaking to the emergency departments that could be involved as well yeah so my role at Griffith University I had a, a joint appointment with Gold Coast University Hospital Emergency Department um, and through that emergency department um, and the the hospital health services have been involved in a number of mass gatherings on an annual basis, uh, providing health support for schoolies on the Gold Coast, providing health support for the Gold Coast Marathon, and a couple of years ago, obviously, assisting in providing health supports around the Commonwealth Games. So I think the Gold Coast is a little bit like, or Southeast Queensland to some degree, is a little bit like the mass gathering playground of the country. There are just so many large events occurring all the time in this region. You know, across Queensland alone, there'd be thousands every year. Across the country, there's tens of thousands of events occurring every year. But again, they, you know, range from the smaller type community fate events where you might have a first aider at it and that's an adequate amount of people to have because people often don't become ill or injured at a fate unless something bad happens. Um, But whereas the larger events, particularly, you know, when you get 40,000 people running in a marathon, you're going to expect that there's a portion of people who end up 
injured or unwell as a result of that activity. Yeah. So, and uh, I guess a little bit more in my last emergency, well, the emergency department that I've got a co-position with now, but it's a department that I worked at clinically for a long time. We had the, um, we had the a fortunate position to be able to every year go to the um, Phillip Island Grand Prix um, and and volunteer our time over that weekend um, as doctors and nurses from emergency departments. Is that something that you think is a good idea? Is there a place for emergency department staff who are usually quite comfortable in a very controlled environment heading out into the world of out, out of hospital um situations like that yeah absolutely again it it depends on the the event population uh, because alongside the emergency healthcare aspects of events i think there's also a growing amount of psychosocial need at events as well Uh, people go to events for particular reasons and often they are about being social and being around people Uh, often mental health issues are more exhibited at uh, particular types of events in comparison to others. So I think a whole of health approach is important. And that whole of health approach does include emergency healthcare. And if you look at who provides the best pre-hospital or out-of-hospital emergency healthcare, I'd have to say it's our paramedic colleagues. So they should be people that are driving a lot of what happens in the event health space, particularly around some of the governance and so forth but absolutely be supported by health who can provide an additional level of care so that if people present which need a higher acuity of care, additional stabilization before transport to hospital, they might be able to provide additional skills such as suturing at an event, um, which maybe the paramedics can't do. So I think people bring different sets of skills to in a particular event um, and that's why I'd advocate for a more of a health integrated approach bio psycho social spiritual approach uh, to such a, a, events rather than focusing on just the biomedical which we've probably done a lot of in the past yeah right you mentioned there um, the governance around uh, around setting this these types of teams up how, how does that work and um how are the in-event uh, health teams regulated? They're not, is the short answer, and there is none, really. So often event organisers are required to have, depending on the size of the event, required to have some type of health support, whether that again be first aiders, first responders, or so on. And that's normally a requirement that they need to tick a box with in terms of getting local government or council approval to host the event there's really no risk assessment or risk matrix that then guides the decisions about, well, what level of health support is required. Sometimes it comes down to an economic aspect as well. That is, most events are commercial entities and they're wanting to make money. Uh, If they put more money into health services, that's less profit for them. If they put more money into security, it's less profit for them and so forth. So they're making business decisions as well. Whereas people in health will be coming from it from a health perspective and a broader population health or what I would term a health security perspective about providing adequate health services to the right people at the right time. So the governance really is lacking around some of that. Um, The exception now being with COVID-19, whereby I've 
provided some consultancy to the Queensland Tourism Industry Council, who was responsible for the development of the COVID industry framework for COVID safe events in Queensland. So I led the development of that, which provides a governance framework for anyone wanting to operate an event in Queensland in the context of COVID-19 still being here, that they follow a particular stepwise approach or process. And a part of that process includes getting approval from the public health unit or depending on the size of the event from the chief health officer. This would be one of the first times where we have actually seen an integration of events and health working side by side. Uh, up until this point in time, as I said, there was a lack of governance around how this occurs unless we see recommendations from a coronial inquest that says lots of people are dying at events to do something about it. And then perhaps we see the knee-jerk reaction of sending retrieval teams to events. And perhaps from our conversation so far, you'd get a sense that maybe retrieval teams aren't the best teams to have at events. Um, but perhaps that broader skill mix of people would be best. So in terms of governance, uh, it's based on knee-jerk reactions of what's happening in the, in the climate of events and health and wherever they seem to collide rather than anything proactive which would actually benefit an industry of events and, again, the health protection and security of the community and the event population. Yeah, so something like the pandemic and the the regulations that we're dealing with at the moment have, have kind of obviously um, spurred um, new investment in these sorts of regulations and um, how that might look in terms of governance. Um, I, I know you've just stolen the grand final from us, from Victoria recently. So in our, in our off-ramp from... Um, lockdown in somewhere like Victoria, what do you reckon the future looks like for big events like the footy, like the Grand Prix, like those sorts of things that are obviously economically valuable, but also really good for people's psychological well-being? Completely, yeah. I think the, the mantra probably is that events won't be the same as they have been until such time as COVID doesn't exist uh, or whatever that looks like. So, but in the meantime, events just can't be like what they have been because they are places where people come together, um, rub shoulders, jump up and down, uh, you know, sit together in stands or whatever it be. So it just can't be the same. The interesting part of this conversation is that the event industry is a creative industry and often they come up with creative ways to do things. So I think what we'll start to see is some different ways in which events might occur. And maybe that will be for the beneficial of people and spectator experience rather than the negative of whatever that looks like. So I think there's opportunities um, and we're starting to see different ideas emerge from event organizers about how to do things differently, whether that be, you know, at um, music festivals, having people on elevated platforms in small groups to, to experience an event whether that be, uh, you know, line dancing within squares rather than everyone close <laughs> together or 
seen drive-in movie theaters um, turn into drive-in concerts. Uh, there's lots of different things that are occurring in the event space. But again, at this stage and in the medium term, I can't see that they're going to be like they were before. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, slight change in direction, but obviously in the same vein. You, you put, published a review earlier this year that uh, identified some key variables that researchers should evaluate in relation to mass gatherings. Um, could you tell us about why these are important and how um, the emergency care world might be able to operationalise the outcomes of this kind of data? So the mass gathering or major event health research um, stream, pillar, area, whatever you'd like to call it, is really in its infancy it's really only taken off in the last 10, 15 or 20 years, similar to a lot of the disaster health literature as well. As, you know, since the Indian Ocean tsunami, it's taken off. Uh, for major events, it's been around some of the Olympics um, that have sparred on how do we understand health services and so forth. So it's really new sets of literature. It's really new and because of that, it focuses a lot on individual case studies as examples of what happens to try and understand the broader complexities. But what we find in undertaking single case studies is that people often report on variables which are not comparable across events. So I might write a case study and you might write a case study, but if we don't use the same types of variables and the same types of language in that, it makes it very hard to be able to come to any conclusion of comparison between those events. As a core, in, core outs, a core, core um, outcome set. Yeah, almost, yeah. So yeah. we've done a lot of work around what we're calling minimum data sets um, to help drive some minimum standards of reporting. What are the key things you want to know? How many people were at the event? How many people went to hospital? What were the broad categories of injuries or illnesses that occurred? What teams did you have on site? What strategies were put in place? What was the weather on the day? How long was the event? Was it a multiple day event or a single day event? Was it daytime or nighttime? All of these things um, we've tried to put together as a minimum data set for people to follow when they write key reports. That will help us then build hopefully some more predictive type modeling, um, a better understanding of the complexities and the impact on health services. The problem with trying to do that at the health service level is often we want to try and capture what patients are presenting as a result of an event. So if there is a music festival or a parade or something nearby, how do you actually know that the your presentations today were up by 10 or down by 10? Is that an impact from the major event or not? So I'm doing some research at the moment. Uh, I have a grant through the Australian Research Council um, where I'm actually looking at 700 events across Queensland over five years. And all of the patients that present to ambulance and emergency departments across Queensland over those five years to try and unpick some of those characteristics and to try and come up with some ways in which we can determine events being low, medium, high risk, depending on the impact um, on health services. My assumption is that it's going to be dependent on different variables already, you know, how many days does the event go for and so forth. Um, how much additional ambulance support is available or not, but it may also be dependent on other factors such as 
if you've got an event of 30,000 people in Melbourne or on the Gold Coast, it probably isn't going to have a great deal of impact on your health services. But if you take a 30,000 people event and to a town that only has 30,000 people and you double the amount of people that are in that town for a certain period of time, chances are that's going to have some impact on your health services. So I want to try and unpick some of those things more um, to build some evidence around things such as maybe that uh, rather than at this stage it's been anecdotal it's been based on well this happened last year so this will happen again this year and essentially it's a bit haphazard and best guess about how we have any guidelines or processes in place around major events the experience in the emergency department is somewhat similar the first time sometimes you know about an event occurring is when a patient presents to triage and goes, oh, I'm at this event down the road. And you're like, oh, that's right. That's on this weekend. Why didn't we know about that? Uh, there's little conversation between events and health. Um, maybe the emergency department doesn't need to know. Maybe it does because maybe you would put on extra staff or maybe you would collaborate in establishing some strategies to reduce those people coming to your emergency department for simple things such as eye washouts or suturing or whatever it may be that you could provide at the event itself. So then health needs to balance up those strategies um, once we understand what those risks and benefits are, um, those strategies with the economics of it because it costs money to put a doctor and a nurse perhaps um, out at an, at an event are they better off being in the hospital seeing patients within their community? Um, and then when someone from the event comes, they can see them as well. Or are you better off putting them at the event, uh, preventing people coming to the emergency department? So again, it's a, a One Health approach. It might be best to have general practice at an event or pharmacy at an event or who knows what at an event um, to try and prevent people coming to your emergency department, using ambulances, and as I say, to protect the, the host community where an event is being held. And I guess just to drill down a bit further on the crowd itself, you know, this I'm guessing, well, I'm not guessing because I, I read your paper, but it's around whether or not there's alcohol and drugs uh, there, what sort of behaviours, the, the mood of the crowd. I mean, I don't even know how you quantify that, um, the kind of culture and those sorts of things. There's a large body of research uh, which has been undertaken well before we looked at it from a health perspective around crowd psychology and how crowds act and behave, how individuals within crowds influence other individuals and so on. But what we know from the programming of events is that, you know, if you're at an outdoor music festival and they have multiple stages where people can move between the various stages at an event to see different acts and performances, um, if you have a stage which has high tempo, loud music continuously, that changes the mood and motivation of the crowd. They get very amped up, very excited. But if you have some downtime, which then requires parts of the crowd to go to a different stage and walk five minutes, everyone kind of calms down a little bit before they get to the next stage. Or if it's at an event where there's only one stage and one performance, then maybe you'll do some really high upbeat, fast stuff. And then after that, you know, have some slower music and kind of calm people down. So even the performance and performers and event organizers are clever in how they go about altering people's moods um, at, at events. Uh, key people that help 
monitor a lot of this as security. So security become part of the ears and eyes of the gra- of the the ground for the health teams. They know what's going on and who's moving where and how much alcohol is being consumed and so forth. The health teams are often out the back in a box somewhere in a tent or a change room or a whatever else doing a lot of hard work caring for patients and they you just don't see the bigger picture of what's actually occurring. Disasters happen at mass gatherings too. Mass gatherings themselves become soft targets for particular deliberate acts of harm and we've seen that across the globe now where Las Vegas shootings, Ariana Grande concerts, um, even people gathering on the streets of Christmas markets and so on in Europe, um, that people see mass gatherings as soft targets. So it's important, I think, for particular types of health services to be aware that that's the case and to have strategies in place that if something does happen at a mass casualty scenario from a particular major event, um, deliberate or not deliberate, uh, because often we've seen non-deliberate um, disasters occur as well, that there's some strategies in place about how that works because you often get now larger numbers of people presenting in comparison to if a disaster occurs and it's not a mass gathering. Um, there's going to be a lot more dispersion of crowd, people movement, more chaotic scenes, harder for emergency services to get into and access the site, harder for them to get out and come to the hospital. So you'll end up with a lot more walk-in type patients to your emergency departments and how you manage those adequately so that you do care for those people and do the greatest good for the greatest number. Now, I know this isn't exactly your um, arena of of expertise, but... um, in this area, you've looked at it in relation to disasters in the past, you know, um, nurses' willingness, nurses' uh, preparedness to, to, go, to go out and help. So w- what do you think about this and um, w- what do you think the role of the nurse in, especially ED nurses, because that's what I'm interested in and our listeners are interested in, um, to assist in disasters, um, is Uh, is the emergency nurse well prepared and uh, are they willing? Yeah. So I'll start with the willingness stuff. Yeah. Are people willing to assist in a disaster? Normally when I do presentations to group, I just ask people, hey, there's a disaster that's just happened. Are you willing to come? And everyone puts up their hand because as nurses, that's what we do. We're going to put up our hand. We're going to help where we can. We care for people. That's why we're nurses. But when you start to drill down on it, things such as, Do you have anyone at home you need to care for? Um, Elderly parents, disabled siblings uh, or child, children in general. Uh, For some people, it's their pet. Um, People start to put down their hands and go, actually, I can't go away for a week and help. I'm going to need to stay at home and help. Uh, Then you ask other questions in relation to if it's, you know, something a bit more conventional that we're used to, a bushfire, flood, cyclone, the Australian summer season, really. Are you willing to go and help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, I'm willing to help. Oh, what if it's something that's chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, we're not really sure of some weird pandemic? People start to go, well, maybe I'm not. Not because they don't want to in terms of I'm a nurse and I want to help, but they don't want to because there is just so much uncertainty about what it means for their longevity, for their 
family and loved ones at home and so forth. So what I've been watching around COVID in particular is exactly some of that playing out. How do we know who's willing to assist and I won't say not willing to assist, but less willing to assist? Because those people that are willing to assist, that's fantastic. Um, And it's fabulous that they can. But I do get concerned about a group of people from our surveys that we've done in the past who said this uncertainty stuff, it's really about 40% of the, the population that we surveyed said that they had some uncertainty about it. What, what are we doing to help and support them who may be turning up to work every day that probably don't really want to be there, but just find themselves in the situation of, I just happen to be in this state or territory and not that one, or I happen to be in this country and not that one, and therefore I have to help. I have no choice. So willingness is really interesting around some of that. Um, and of course, willingness in the context of bushfire floods and cyclones doesn't always equal ability. So I might be willing to go to work and assist, but because of the bushfire, the flood or the cyclone, I just physically cannot get to work and assist. So what we see then is nurses assisting in their local community and in the out of hospital space as much as they can uh, because they're prevented physically from being able to get to work because of the road infrastructure is flooded, there's bushfires crossing their path or whatever it may be. And then nurses in the out-of-hospital context, we did some research around nurses uh, who assisted in the out-of-hospital context during the 2009 Victorian bushfires and found that they did four key things. One was that they did really minimal clinical care. Their clinical care was things such as eye washes and breathing difficulties and so forth. There wasn't any real major major trauma, major burns and so forth, because unfortunately, as you would know, in that event, um, people either died or they had minor illness and injury as a result. Didn't fill our burn centers as we were expecting. It's horrific. So nurses in the out-of-hospital context provide this minimal clinical care. Then they also provide uh, problem-solving. They're good at solving the problems such as Cliff comes to the evacuation center, and normally takes a white round pill three times a day because his doctor told him to, but he doesn't know what it's for and he doesn't know where to get it from and he's left it at home. Nurses are normally pretty good in being able to find out what that actually is for and where to get some from. Nurses are also good at coordination of care. And hey, we do this every day in the hospital environment. How do we get patients in, get them out, move them through? Who's, which bed space do they need to be in? Which doctor am I going to get? I don't want that doctor seeing them. Let's get that doctor over there. You know, we need them to go to x-ray, whatever. They're the coordinators of care. So they do that in the disaster context as well. That is, I know that this patient here actually needs to be over there. So what resources can I find, whether it be ambulance or a friend or someone else to get them from here to there? And they do a lot of that. But what they spend most of their time doing is psychosocial support. So most of the time, someone will present with a sore toe. Not because they actually have a sore toe. They just want to talk to somebody. And often they want to talk to somebody who's a healthcare professional. And often they want to talk to somebody who's not necessarily from their own community. So nurses uh, come from all other parts of the country to assist in such events. And when you've been involved in an event like that, so has your neighbor and their neighbor and everybody in the community has a situation and a story to tell 
about what's just happened. And people find it unfair then to go to their neighbor and go, well, this just happened to me. And their neighbor's like, yeah, I know, but that just happened to me too. And this happened to me. So they confide often in healthcare professionals as an ear for someone to listen to and talk to about what's happened. The problem of this though, from a healthcare professional's perspective is that on a day-to-day basis in your hospital context, in the emergency department, if someone has a stressful experience, a major trauma in their life, they come into your emergency department, that may be the one patient you see today that has this traumatic experience and everyone else has chest pain, shortness of breath and a sore toe. In the disaster context, it's everybody you're seeing. In the in-hospital context, you can share that emotional burden with your other nursing and doctor colleagues, um, with someone from the psych department or the social worker or whoever it be. In the disaster context, it's you and your colleagues, and they're also dealing with the same types of issues and emotional burden from what's occurred in that particular community. So not only are they providing psychosocial support for uh, the local community, but you're providing psychosocial support for one another, which is really important. And I think we start to see that a little bit now in the context of COVID too. That is, everybody has a story to tell about what it's like for them to be in COVID. Often people will talk to doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals about it. So it's as equally as important that we're providing psychosocial support to the communities in which we're in, but also taking the time to have psychosocial support and be kind to one another as well. Jamie, I reckon that's um, probably the best way to finish this off, being kind to each other. It's been a real pleasure and it's been a real eye-opener for me uh, looking into this area of emergency health care. Um, Thanks so much for being with us. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Cliff. I could talk for days about this stuff, so I'm glad you cut me off. (laughs) Yeah, I get the sense (laughs) that you could. Good on you, mate. Cool. Thanks, Cliff. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life.